0: Welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and this is the second part in our series on the IED. IED is the acronym for Improvised Explosive Device. In our last episode, I spoke with Harry Parker, an infantry soldier who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. Harry was blown up by an IED on the 18th of July, 2009. In this episode, I will be discussing battlefield medicine with a combat surgeon, with particular reference to the IED. And then, in the final episode, I will be talking with an ex-soldier who works for the Halo Trust, the NGO specialising in the disarming of mines and IEDs. Part 2. Combat Surgeon my guest today is a doctor who qualified in the 1990s. He also served as a territorial soldier based out of the Duke of York's barracks in London. In 2004, he was appointed consultant vascular surgeon specialising in minimally invasive endovascular surgery at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital. He was posted as a combat surgeon to Camp Bastion in Afghanistan in 2008-9 and in 2012. He is now a partner in the Cambridge medical research company SIDAR, which he founded with others in 2012. Tom Carroll, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. So the first thing perhaps is just a little bit of background from your childhood, family, growing up. Uh, so I uh,
1: grew up in New Zealand. We had a fairly strong kind of military uh, tradition in the family. Um, And I came over here actually as a late teenager. Um, In fact, did an attachment out with Royal Green Jackets in um, Germany in 1986, I think it was. Uh, Vaguely toyed with the idea of joining then. I I didn't. Uh, I went and uh, followed the other family tradition, which was medicine. And uh, yeah, qualified uh, as a doctor um, in in 91. And then uh, missed a little bit of, that whole life and particularly the kind of field craft that aspect of it so i actually joined um the ta in 1995 um as a sideline from doing medicine and my
0: surgical training and that was uh, in london were you doing your training i was in london yeah yeah i turned up to the duke of york's barracks oh yes uh, yes in fact our um the soldier who's um took part in this podcast in the previous one was um harry parker he was uh, in the uh, the rifles. So there's a nice little link there. Um, they've obviously changed since you were out with the green jackets. They've all been amalgamated like all of us. Okay, so then you, so you're in the TA and you were also uh, a doctor, mostly in London, doing your training. Um, before we go further into the, the, the sort of uh, the combination of the two, um, I think it'd be a good thing to talk a little bit about the history of battlefield medicine. First of all, we might decide what it's called because it seems to be called all sorts of things. What's the sort of general Yeah, I think name?
1: battlefield medicine's a good a good term. Right, yeah. okay.
0: So um, tell us a little bit about the history of battlefield medicine, Tom.
1: Uh, it's a huge subject. It goes back kind of to ancient Greek times and um, and onwards. But essentially the the theme's actually quite uh, consistent all the way through, which is that there's nothing quite like um, war to really move on medicine. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of the really big advances in medicine and in surgery uh, in particular um, have been you know driven for these kind of quantum leaps um, that have happened. Um, and it's drilled into you actually right on the way through uh, medical school and surgical training um, a lot of a lot of the basic principles. Uh, and they go back to all sorts of things about the importance of stopping bleeding. There's a lot of these terms that are still used in surgery. débridement um, and others which go back, I think, to medieval um, French um, war surgery. This, this importance of cleaning wounds, um, what used to be thought of as just cleaning the wound and lead, lead, leaving God to heal it. Uh, On to other things that, again, they've got kind of big French themes around the um, sorting of patients, the triage. Uh, all these things pop up and they're all um, from these kind of wartime experiences of how do you use what you have in the way of your resources to give the maximum benefit to the maximum number of people that you have um, and uh, then yeah 20th century which uh, you know, look at where that started and where it finished up um, in terms of how we looked after after people uh, in general and um, in casualties in particular. Uh, from things where going into First World War, if you had a open fracture, you know, gunshot wound to the femur, you had the eighty percent chance of dying coming out from that, and it was kind of a less than ten percent chance of, of dying. You had blood transfusion that was pioneered uh, literally you know, during First World War with uh, blood banks um, you know, being kind of part and parcel and, uh, uh, of uh, care coming out of the First World War. Invention of cardiac surgery was basically a wartime innovation, uh, and it was very, you know, actually just thinking back to my training in the 1980s and late 80s, early 90s, uh, it was still very much that wartime uh, legacy. The really big names in world surgery were those people that made their names uh, as young surgeons during the Second World War. Uh, and uh, korean war afterwards um and then were you know, these with the, 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 these uh,
0: americans and 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 um, commonwealth people as well doctors
1: so, so all of the above that's <laughs> so all of the above. so the, the really big uh yeah, american names like uh DeBakey. um the big commonwealth names um yeah, he was actually more mature surgeon, surgeon at the time during the Second World War, but uh, Archibald McIndoe, who uh, who had basically founded the modern specialty of plastic surgery and whose legacy um, at East Grinstead and then spreading around the world was, you know, hugely, hugely impactful.
0: Uh, Was that the fighter pilots um, who got burnt? Was that the guinea pigs?
1: It was Yeah, it was it was the guinea pigs. But it was more than that. It was uh, this approach to soft tissue injuries. uh, And the uh, reconstructive surgery the whole print the whole practice of it that uh, was um yeah that was pioneered and then kind of blossomed from that out into a massive massive thing and not just obviously wartime that's probably the big uh, resonant thing is you get these big advances these big quantum leaps and then a kind of filtering of those lessons from what happens in wartime out into civilian practice
0: and so uh, from ancient times to the present day, I imagine if you received a wound on the battlefield a couple of thousand years ago, there's a good chance you're just going to die. So that in, in so much as there wouldn't be that many wounded ultimately to care for. Whereas nowadays, if, if you get them off the battlefield and look after them, you know, just about everyone can survive. Is, is that a thing? You know, in, in, in other words, do you, did they not have a problem? A prob- did they not have something to deal with that we do now?
1: Yeah, so exactly. So broadly speaking, there are kind of three sort of modes of of death after trauma. Uh, And there's the kind of immediate death, the sort of unsurvivable injuries, uh, where even if that injury happened to you in the middle of an operating theater, you you couldn't be saved. Um, And then there's the second uh, mode of death, which are the people who die pretty quickly within yeah, an hour, maybe a couple of hours, uh, and a big peak in the first half half an hour after after trauma, and that's a lot of that is people uh, bleeding to death, um, uh, so hemorrhage, um, and then you have the the late deaths, which uh, have been you know, largely due to organ failure, to infection, uh, and also kind of you know, long-term unsurvivable uh, brain injuries. So actually, that understanding of the patterns of of threats to life after trauma, that's been a really big bit of driving the improvement in uh, care and, and led to the dramatic changes in survival rates um, in, in modern times. And it, yeah, it kind of goes, it's actually that, that understanding of things goes right the way from the design of uh, your modern body armor and vehicle protection through to the systems of management that we have for battlefield trauma um, from the point of injury through to definitive care. So probably one of the biggest uh, changes in modern times has been this understanding that your job early on in the, from point of injury uh, to uh, kind of primary um, care is just to stop the people, stop the casualties from dying Um, and getting them into a stable condition where you can then go and embark on the more definitive care uh, later on down the line, once you've stabilized them, got their physiology, you know, the balance of all the chemicals and temperature and um, acid-base balance and stuff in the body back to normal. Um, So it's this idea of saving life uh, early on uh, and just being hugely rigorous about that bit in the first you know 30 minutes hour, two hours. Um, and then you can then embark on those things that Archibald McIndoe and others had had, had, had you know, pioneered in terms of the reconstruction of people when they're in a, a, a much fitter state to do that.
0: Is there in that initial stage where you, you know you're really up against it and there's a lot going on, some of the techniques you know, it must have evolved whereby you know that for, for long term things to be less of a problem, there's, there's maybe some different ways of dealing with them immediately. And you want to do the best, have the best method. You know, if you've got a choice of what you're going to do, um, is that something or is that not a, a question? It's just save the life. Uh,
1: it is. Uh, it is a question, but but the answer is kind of the same. Um, and the principle um, involved. Uh, Overriding principle is what's called damage control, Uh, and so it is. You are doing the minimum that is necessary early on to stop the casualty from dying, Um, and so that means you're doing the minimum in the way of uh, surgery. You're doing the minimum in the way of any attempt at, be essentially avoiding any reconstruction and things early on, Um, and this. whole emphasis around what you're doing on what's called the critical care of the patient so looking after the uh, physiology of the patient so looking after their whole body in terms of um, how they are their stability the amount of you know circulating volume they have in their body the acid base the oxygenation and all the rest of it and these bits that we used to consider to be the most important bits, which was the, the surgical bits of it are kind of secondary to that, the, 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 the surgery is just simply to be able to um, allow the stabilization of the patient. Right. I don't know if, I don't know if now's a good time, but actually the, the whole story about damage control is, is an interesting one because it, it comes directly from the Navy,
0: actually. From the Navy.
1: Yeah, from the Navy. Right. So as to what you do on ships. uh, So if you're torpedoed or...
0: Yeah. So
1: this uh, concept of damage control comes from, I understand, it comes from the uh, Navy and this this idea that if you're uh, in a ship and you're torpedoed or bombed or whatever, you do what's called damage control, which is enough to keep the ship afloat. And so that involves, you know, hammering in wooden wedges and putting up things to stop the the boat sinking, but you can carry on fighting in the meantime, and then you look to do the definitive repairs, you know, back in the safety of of port and the rest for it. And it's that principle that was uh, learnt, uh, probably relearned to some extent, um, uh, but was absolutely embarked uh, or absorbed right the way through the training from the management of uh, people from the moment they're injured through to what happens uh, when they arrive in you know, the uh, state-of-the-art field hospitals uh, at the moment. So everything uh, around what happens to the casualty was geared to um, stabilising things
0: just to stop the boat know, from sinking. Uh, Stop the boat from sinking. Yes, That's exactly yeah. it, and and that, that sounds like um, that that was developed in sort of Napoleonic times. Almost are you saying wooden wedges? I mean, what was or was this later in the twentieth century? Oh, so the
1: so the wooden wedges what you do on uh, what you do on ships on yes, oh, yeah, the yes, obviously, yeah. For, yeah. For, for,
0: but the, this thought the, pattern was developed not just recently, but a couple of hundred years ago, or not?
1: No, not so much. It was actually there had been a drift in. Uh, trauma care in the late 20th century to um, actually trying to do everything in one go. Um, So uh, probably in late 20th century, um, the early part of the century, if you went to a a hospital, a a good quality Western hospital, and you had an injury um, and a serious injury, is you would end up with definitive treatment of that. Uh, injury uh, first time round. This idea of get it right um, you know, uh, with what you do th- the first uh, surgery. The big shift was actually that's not what it's about. It's about uh, just getting the patient in a in a in a stable condition. So the kind of things that we would do as if somebody was had gunshot wounds or fragmentation wounds to the the bowel. We don't look to repair the bowel to restore the continuity of the bowel. We'd actually use these stapling devices just to staple off those areas of the bowel that were leaking um, and then stabilize the patient. And then sometime when they're a better uh, physical state, physiological state, bring them back and then uh, restore the continuity of the bowel, excise the bits that were uh, Uh, non-viable. To the extent that we would have, um, you know, it's standard practice that if you have somebody with uh, major abdominal trauma. That actually you deal with that. You stop the bleeding, but you don't actually even close the abdomen at the end of surgery because you don't want to be increasing the pressure on the vital organs inside. You want to be giving them room that they can uh, they can swell. Um, and you know, with the these devastating IED type of uh, wounds, where you have absolutely you know, undescribably horrific, uh, not just bony but soft tissue injuries. Um, we would do the minimum amount in the first surgery to um, do the debridement that was pioneered back in um, medieval Napoleonic times, but to clear away the dead and infected tissue. But we wouldn't do anything that was you would consider to be a definitive you know, amputation or to be a definitive. We would, certainly would never close wounds. Mm. Um, we would um, just do what was required to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to surgery the next day to then start the process for. Um, yeah, for for yeah, definitive
0: uh, surgery. And that was surgery out in Bastion, or was that back in England by then?
1: So this was surgery uh, out in Bastion, and was happening also in in Iraq as well. But as subsequent filter back, you know, when I came back from my uh, first tour, I was uh, made a director of one of the um, new major trauma centres. There was this realisation that this new standard of care for trauma should be rolled out across the uh, NHS. Um, and so this major trauma network was set up. So I was brought in to be a director of one in, uh, King's college hospital in, um, South London. So how we could then bring back these lessons that had been, you know, learnt, uh, yeah, in ironically in the middle of deserts, (laughs) uh, and bring them back and try and see if we could replicate the success that we had with survival out there back in the, in the NHS,
0: in the Western civilian life the NHS for those of our listeners who aren't uh, in Britain uh, is the uh, health service in this country most people know that but um, okay well as we talked about that maybe we could talk about your sort of route into all of this from being just uh, or being a, a doctor in St Thomas's and then deciding to go down this route and do the training and, and And what is the sort of preparation and training that a doctor has to do? Yeah okay
1: so my first, first of all my, my background as a as a doctor was particularly um, good place to start, which was vascular surgery. So uh, dealt with uh, surgery on the major blood vessels of the body. Uh, And the most important skill in trauma surgery is being able to stop bleeding. Um, So I was flagged up because of that for a start. Um, And But then what happens is you're put in through this uh, training program and uh, a real understanding of the whole end-to-end process of what's going on. Um, For those people listening who are familiar with uh, the old Korean war um, mash type of story story where it was all about the the surgeon, uh, it's not actually like that anymore. The big man, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, it's not about the big man, actually. You're actually just one cog in this entire machine, uh, which is totally geared to uh, saving life. Um, and it's understanding how that all works and how the whole system, right from the point of injury through to definitive care works and your role in that. So the training that uh, was involved was incredible. It was, know, yeah, there was um, a yeah, mock-up of the entire field hospital
0: um, so sorry, you got uh, you got a um, a call up from what a, a buddy that was doing it in the army and and said, "Come on, Tom, you should you should get involved and in this. Is something you could really do." How, how did that work? The initial
1: uh, it was slight, it was slight, a little bit more uh, official than that. So it was um, this is getting serious. What's happening out in Iraq and Afghanistan? I was originally called up for um, for Iraq, but then. Switched to uh, Afghanistan, uh, so this is all hotting up.
0: Were you called uh, up? We, sorry to interrupt, but were you called up because you were on the reserve in any fashion?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was called up because I was on on reserve list, uh, and it was you are being. Well, you get you get a friendly phone phone call first of all, being told that you are about to be compulsorily mobilised. Um, and but it was yeah, this very official letter comes in, which is you, you are being. Uh, compulsory mobilised. This is the procedure for it. This is where to report to, uh, and the rest. Um, and then you're put onto this whole uh, process of the um, pre-deployment training uh, that you do for it, uh, which you do as an entire unit, so that you're familiar with all the people that you're going to be out there with. You're familiar with all of the all of the um, techniques, all of the your procedures that you have out there, all of the equipment, um, and you're put through incredible levels of Uh, simulation both as a whole hospital but also as a as a surgeon uh, and doing um, I mean it sounds odd as I'm talking to you about it but it's incredibly real incredibly realistic the simulations that you put through Uh, and putting you under uh, testing not just for your surgical skill but actually for your decision making um, and the teamwork in particular that was an absolute eye-opener to me as to how that how much better that can become we had yeah people well even though you're
0: industry. you're used to being in a team in a hospital in london it's yep. it's, a, it's a different yep. level yep. yeah totally different
1: level totally different level um because the situations are a lot more complex and um there's a lot of information that you are not party to because you're quite focused on the task that you're doing in hand which is the surgery. But there's lots of other stuff going on that you need to be knowing. You need to know about, and you know things to do with this particular patient in terms of their physiology, in terms of what's happening next to them, the kind of general trends that are going on, how you communicate that, how you work with the critical care people and the and that around you, but also the bigger picture because we were we were regularly, um, really regularly inundated, and uh, just really really difficult decisions as to how we were going to cope with the amount of um yeah the decisions. decisions coming coming in the front door yeah
0: yes and so you said you go out, you you train it, it, with a team that you then go out with i mean does does everyone pass then or, or i mean surely some people sort of aren't up for it and, and have to you have to get somebody else in or is that not
1: yeah so? i mean there's there's obviously been a fair amount of uh, selection that's gone on bef- beforehand so it's 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 actually much more about you're melding uh, together and forming a yes. team, and under understanding how people are and, and how you fit in, into the whole thing. Um, and
0: is, uh, is there any yeah. um, is there any choice that you can you know like apparently Lancaster crews would 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 choose their team. They would crew up. They would be put into a big room, and they would, you know, you need a pilot and a navigator and so on, and they would crew up, and and that meant there was tremendous sort of loyalty and teamwork within these crews. Was there any of that allowed, or was it not? Really
1: possible? Uh, not, not that I was aware of. I was pulled out of a, a pool of of kind of individuals um, and put into it. my first deployment was actually with three commando brigade. So they were mostly navy, the people that I was with. So in the middle of the desert, they'd be talking about decks, and, ships.
0: Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. What? So the they call the heads.
1: The, yeah, the heads. Exactly, all that sort of stuff. And they yeah. would go to the galley, rather than the yeah. house. and well, a, wall, wall, a wall was called a bulkhead. And, all sorts
0: of yeah. Yes, all the jargon. I they love it, it in the yeah. in the military, don't they? Yeah. Um okay, so you you've got your team. How long is that training? I think it's, I think
1: it started probably about six months before. Uh and you would do you do various kind of stints of a week at a time doing doing various things. Um and, well, and then, then go back the, to
0: your day job, would
1: you, or not? And then and then go back to your day job. Mm-hmm. And then in the weeks before you actually deployed, there was a whole um formal kind of mobilization process where you did a lot of the military um skills and tests and um what, training firearms and so on fire yeah. yeah everything from firearms to you know law of armed conflict to fitness tests to uh specialist stuff for the theater that you're deploying to in terms of you know language and culture and intelligence and the rest
0: and is everyone a reservist then on in this situation so some people really could be working in hospital and find themselves called up anyway yeah and
1: so on the on the medical side the, the regulars work in um in uh national health service hospitals um anyway it's just that they're on they are regular officers um so it's um there wasn't a sort of a noticeable uh, difference. I mean, obviously, when you get together, you talk about your different backgrounds and, and the rest. And there are some things that the that the regulars are you know, far more up to speed with, um, and takes a longer run in for the reservists to do. But by the time you're out there and deployed, it um, it, it it felt very very level uh, across the piece because you kind of understand and your part in the whole machine and what everyone's doing. And it, it's that sort of yeah you know, how you've come to it is. I, you know, I want to say uh, uh, there'd be lots of people there that I wouldn't even be aware of what they're, you know, whether they were a reservist or a, reserve, a sort of regular kind of background.
0: Yes. Well, I mean, that's quite encouraging because there's always been this feeling that, I mean, as a nation, we we have this navy and then we have a little army uh, and, and, and so on. And it's only in real, really bad times that everyone has to sort of man up and get into uniform. And um, and so the reservists are, are you know, going back to history, it's always been a very important part of our our um, armed forces um so it's good to hear that um so the training and then you're you're deployed uh you were deployed on op herrick 9 and 16 which is in afghanistan to camp bastion was that where you went it was yeah
1: um and yeah exactly so in the middle of the desert element. I was looking at place. a picture
0: of it today. It really couldn't I mean it couldn't look more bleak. I mean it, it, there's not a tree or anything inside. Was that why it was chosen? Yeah, basically.
1: Yeah. It was um it was exactly it was a place that could be secured and it was um yeah.
0: Was there anything was, there before? It was, was it literally a piece of desert that they just
1: they just it's marked a out? Literally piece of yeah, literally piece of desert and they dug boreholes to get water and put an airstrip and perimeter and then the whole thing grew and grew and grew. And it was, so, um, in fact, just, I think it was about a month before I arrived in 2008, that moved from the hospital being in tents um, into it being in uh, a hard standing building. And then by the time it was back in 2012, it had, you know, multiplied in, in size and sophistication uh, as well. So the whole thing was constantly, yeah, it was like a building site and
0: um, just constant development. Yes, I suppose they had the space, so they could just keep adding things. Uh, and it's, was it m- being built by the Americans mainly?
1: No, there were two camps. So Bastion was uh, overwhelmingly British. I mean, there were some other detachments there, so Estonian and da- Danish. There was a American camp, kind of adjacent Camp Leatherneck, um, that grew Particularly by Thomas. Back there, after, in 2012, the Marine Expeditionary Force uh, had arrived in full scale, but it was overwhelmingly
0: British. Well, because that was the area you were—they were the Brits were operating in—and there'd be other U.S. field yeah. hospitals. Um, yeah. Elsewhere. Yeah. The,
1: the, yeah. Early on, the Americans were uh, much more dominant further north in the country. Um, so the British were there in in Helmand. Uh, and then it was a mixture of British and Americans in in Kandahar.
0: Okay. Um so your experience, you arrive in Afghanistan and uh you're there for a six-month tour, are you? Is that how it works? No, it was three months,
1: a three month tour actually in the in, in in country. Um yeah, so the it was uh you had a actually I'll just ask you a question, Tom. What uh, I could talk about anything from here.
0: <laughs> well, I just... I, you yeah, talk about anything. Just talk about what you feel like talking about. I mean, this is... I just want to get a picture of what it's like to to be there. And, you, okay, you know, so you... Uh,
1: so it's... Um, okay, just give me a second. Uh, so it's an extraordinary experience. So you... Um, you say goodbye to, to your family, you you check in at RF Brys Norton, you get on a a flight um, and you then, as you're approaching, um, unlike any other airline flight you've been on, it's now it's time to put on your body armor and your helmet and we're turning off the lights and starting the descent into Kandahar. um, And then you arrive there and it's suddenly feeling all quite serious. um, And then you get on a, at that time we got on a C-130 and flew across and because I was an individual re- replacement, individual reinforcement, uh, there's a kind of a motley crew of other people on board that aircraft. And then you come in and again, kind of a sort of a tactical landing, almost at, um, at, at a bastion. And then you arrive and it's, you're there in the middle of the desert and all the, you know, the, it was winter time actually first time I was out there and, but just the, the smells and the sights of things, um, and these things that you've been seeing only on TV up until you know, a few you know, until 24 hours before um' and suddenly right there in the middle of it and you walk into the into the hospital um and you're right into it and i I think that the one of the things that I was you know, always unsure about was whether this was going to be as busy and intense as it appeared to me. From the training that had been through and from what I'd seen on the news. Um, And it was instantly, you know, this kind of welcome like, you know, thank God you're here and, you know, we've got all this stuff to do and can we just get started on it straight away? And so you're straight into the the thing. There's a handover, obviously, that's going on with the uh, surgeon who you're relieving. Um, But it was, you know, straight in at the deep end and just busy from, busy from, not just from day one, but almost from hour one um, into into things. Uh, it was the most extraordinary, extraordinary transition that you do from going from normal civilian life into yeah, just fully immersed in this, this world where you're seeing you know, patterns of injury um, that you've just not been exposed to before. Uh, I mean, you know all about, but you're ju- and and it's just relentless.
2: The following is an extract from Harry Parker's book, Anatomy of a Soldier. Chapter 13. The Oscillating Saw. It happened faster than normal. I was picked up and rattled onto a stainless steel trolley spread with tools that had been carefully lined up, but the knives and forceps spun and slid about as it was quickly wheeled over. I was now at the end of the table next to the body. Someone go and tell the family. He lifted the leg and inspected it, moving the puffy flesh. How high? he asked. No one answered. He was over the body, still assessing it, and the others looked at him and over his shoulder, waiting for his decision. He glanced at the body's head and paused. Al, we're a bit low on blood. Pressure has just decreased dramatically. The woman was watching a machine. How can we be low, Sarah? He looked up at her. We'll go get some more. And can someone please clean this off the floor? I'm slipping. He then spoke very little, and the team around him started to move to each command he gave. A man cleaned the floor, smearing sweeps of blood by his feet, but he ignored them as more blood dripped down onto the tiles. ''Right, I'm going to do it around here.'' His finger traced a line of blood over the intact skin of the thigh. ''There's no muscle in this region to do a myodesis, so I'll use what's left of the vastus lateralis and femoris to wrap over the distal limb,'' he said as the flesh wobbled in his hands. ''We can use this skin to cover it and avoid too much exposed tissue.'' We then graft up the inner thigh. That should provide good function. Al, his levels are stable. By advice, we get a move on. Right, let's do it. Scalpel. He slashed decisively across the skin, smoothly splitting the flesh apart. The cuts of the scalpel went down through the subcutaneous tissue and fascia, deep into the flesh and through muscle and membrane that covered the bone. He slid the blade around and threw dead and dying flesh, Blood paused after each cut before seeping out the ends of the vessels. He asked for the tourniquet to be tightened. He went carefully in some areas and created a flap of muscle that hung down. He dissected the sciatic nerve proximally. Sweat showed on the bridge of his nose. He used absorbent sutras and then repositioned the grey sheaths of nerves with prods of his finger. Then he told them he was now going to address the femoral vessels, and the woman helped him transect an artery and two veins. Dark red blood pulsed out and the tubes collapsed. One slipped free and disappeared into the mess. She swore and delved in with forceps to pull it out. He asked for a stick tie for the double ligation, which he manoeuvred with long metal tweezers before letting the sutras clamp around the rubbery tubes. He grunted that he wanted the electrocautery forceps, and a small machine resting next to me on the trolley was handed to him. He placed it against the arteries, and it sparked as it cauterised the ends of the vessels. He told them they had achieved hemostasis, and the smell of burnt flesh wafted up. He told them he was happy so far, and he glanced down at me. He stretched his back and said that he was getting too old for this. He asked for a cob elevator a small metal implement that was picked off the trolley and he cleaned away soft tissue from the bone until the white showed. He shaved away a thick ridge and all the peristeum he could get to. The soft, fleshy areas of the leg were now held apart by a bar of bone that was dry and hard between them. Two others helped him position retractors that pulled the flesh out of the way so the bone was clear. They had worked faster than I had experienced before. He asked for the oscillating saw. I was passed to him. He gripped my handle and placed a gloved finger on my metal trigger. He held me like a weapon, and down at the end of my barrel was a flat stainless steel blade with its sharp teeth pointing forward in overlapping rows. He pulled my trigger and my motor whirred and my blade end blurred. This was when I became useful. He said he was happy to make the cut. He asked one of them to hold the limb. His masked face looked down over me and his head torch-lit my matte surface. I was in the valley between two banks of flesh, pointing straight down at the exposed shaft of the femur. He pulled my trigger again, and I made my blade vibrate so that his teeth distorted together as one. He pulled harder until my blade was cycling 16,000 times a minute. My high-pitched buzz was new in the room, and the men and women shifted uncomfortably. He held me an inch above, and then lowered me so my 90 millimeter wide blade touched the bone. The pitch changed as I started to cut down, my blade heated quickly, and they squirted saline solution onto me and the cutting face. It evaporated in steam that swirled around the bone and prevented me from overheating. He let my weight descend. My blade end cut through the bone, flashing splinters and dust from the thin trench I gouged out. The juddering of bone passed through the pelvis and into the body so that its skull trembled. The sound of my blade changed tone again as I cut deeper and into the marrow. A small pile of dust and shards grew on the table below me. He concentrated, his hands steady around me as I cut smoothly down, and then I was nearly through and the trench started to pull open under the weight of the limb. He told them to support it firmly until he was through. Suddenly I jerked down and was oscillating free into the air. The bone pulled apart and the leg and its foot moved away, the gap widening until it was no longer below the body, but being placed on another trolley that was quickly wheeled away. The body had no feet.
0: Can you describe the day in the life of a a surgeon? Yeah, sure. So at
1: that stage we were uh, still living in tents, um, so we had a it was a tent, I suppose. I can remember. Eight of us um, in it, um, and so you get up, get up in the morning. Uh, normal time, I think it's about like, seven o'clock. I can't remember. It was the time that we kind of uh, breakfast and then um, reported to the hospital. I think seven thirty or so, um, and you just start doing your rounds, looking at the uh, patients, the people who had been in overnight. You were immediately planning your surgery for the day. One of the things that you had because of the damage control surgery that when people first come in, you're only uh, looking to you know stop them dying. You then have to we bring them back um you know 24 hours later and then often at 24 or 48 hour intervals for repeat surgery to do a bit more do a bit, bit more. We had a, a large proportion of the of the patients were um you know local nationals so Civilians, Afghan National Army, Afghan National Police, Taliban. Um, And so you'd just be making this plan for what you're doing uh, for the day, have then kind of uh, a a regroup on that cup of coffee and then go in and start operating. And then, generally speaking, I mean, it's funny um, just talking about it, but it was sort of predictable that around about 10 o'clock the calls would start coming. And because you're part of the system, the, you'll be getting the, these things called nine-liners, which were the report, the casualty reports coming in um, as to what to be expecting. So you're immediately now adjusting what you're doing uh, and your plans for operating so that you're creating the capacity for when the casualties has started arriving. Um, and then you're going through the whole setup, the whole design of the place was incredibly um, well laid out because it was literally a, a door between the operating room and the um, the emergency department, which is the emergency room base resus bay was literally a, a door. Um, so you step out that door and you're all set up as this team. Um, and if you can think of like a, a formula one kind of pit team, if you've ever seen that sort of layout, yes, that's how everyone stands around, that's how you're standing around. And then the, the uh, the the MERT crew, so the crew on the um, medical emergency response team. Um, basically, these uh, they're the critical care uh, pre-hospital experts um, who bring the bring the carriage the team in. They they will have embarked on all sorts of stuff already en route. Uh, often, the patient um, is being ventilated already, or certainly has a lot of the uh, lines and um, dressing is always rest rest in in place. There is this uh, handover that happens, the whole thing incredibly structured. Um, My job was, as the trauma surgeon, you stood um, at the foot of the patient. You had your arms behind your back. Um, You were not allowed to touch the patient to start off with so that you could then just get this holistic picture of what was going on. There would often obviously be multiple casualties arriving at the same time. And so you would just be making the calls as to what was gonna happen with um with each of the uh, each of the casualties. as hasten to that these weren't kind of you know me making the call just on my own. We had um as the, the DMT deployed medical director as well himself would be standing there, would be going that patient, yeah, straight onto uh table number one. Um, you know, basically that that would be somebody who was uh in the process of you know trying to die on us and we needed to go and do what we could to, to stop the,
0: the bleeding and, and uh, table one going. would have what five or six people around it already with all the ta- so ta- table one
1: would have the it would have the uh the scrub nurse and the circulating nurse already um preparing what they thought was most likely to go on which would have come from the what's called the nine-liner the cashew report coming in so you yeah, you'd have an idea whether it was you know whether it was ID, gunshot wound, whether it was chest, whether it's abdomen, whether it's limbs. Um, and so that would be setting up for that. there'll be an anesthetist um, uh, as well. but actually they were coming through and actually escorting the patient from the resource um, uh, resource bay through into uh, into uh, the operating room transfusion medicine, they were there, they were already anticipating what were the requirements. Um, uh, there was just a whole infrastructure. And it. it was the hospital management because we had a limited number of beds um, that already be planning on the uh, onward disposal, it was called, of the uh, cash as to where they were gonna go to uh, after surgery. We had a CT scanner in the other adjacent um door there uh and anyone who was remotely stable enough to go through the ct scanner would go through and have a top to toe uh, ct scan where we could just pick up all of the injuries um
0: ct scan works on soft tissue does it is that how you get the picture uh, it
1: it, it's uh it's like a three-dimensional x-ray so you get bones you get soft tissues it was incredibly sensitive you had with the blast injuries um and even some of the gunshot wounds that hadn't actually gone inside the abdominal cavity because of the shock waves with um, high-velocity um, rounds, you would get uh, a, yeah, uh, bowel um, I- injuries just from the shock waves. So that was incredibly good at detecting you know, the small leaks of gas that you had from, from those injuries.
0: So, so if, uh, if something went past, they, they, it would rupture the gut inside, would it? Is that what could happen?
1: Yeah. So generally speaking, it would be so uh, an IED blast um, uh, or it would be a high velocity round that had not actually penetrated the abdominal cavity, but had gone through some part of soft tissue close to it. Um, and you could easily be misled by you know, checking the, the track of the round and going, well, yeah, that was a close shave. It didn't get anything vital, but in fact, yeah, you know, the shock wave had uh, caused a perforation in the bowel and if left, Untreated, the patient would rapidly get peritonitis and be in a very, very bad uh, way very quickly.
0: Okay, so that's, um, and yes,
1: sorry, just to Down. just to say another thing, which is just um, for people who aren't familiar with um, modern day weapons, uh, and not just the IEDs, but also the um, the high energy uh, rounds that you have with modern assault weapons, is they're just not Uh, they don't respect kind of conventional anatomical boundaries that you would have, say with a kind of a stab injury or something. You, you had a lot of injury being done quite distant to the point of wounding. So the CD scanner was very good at picking, picking that up. And you could be, you know, somebody who had seemingly been shot in one place or had an injury in one place, you'd be picking up the, the sites of, you know, Uh, often life-threatening entry that was quite remote to that.
0: And is that, do you think, new to the battlefield, or has that always been the case, but which just wasn't picked up on?
1: I think it was one of those things that had been recognised to some extent, the full extent of it not really appreciated, and then had been somewhat forgotten. Um, And then because of the advance in technology, yeah, yeah, this was probably the first big war where there were cd scanners where you could literally put you know these horrendously um, injured um casually straight through a cd scanner um that you just got your eyes opened as to how much was going on um and you know, the complexity of you know of, of these injuries
0: and are you all ct scan could you look at them yourself and know exactly what you're looking at or does is there a technician who then sort of interprets it for you
1: Yeah, so interesting. So that evolved very quickly. So initially it was us looking at it ourselves. Um, and The data links back in 2008 were not great. So if we're sharing the CD scans back with an expert in the UK, it was very low resolution um, imaging being shared. Uh, So you were kind of reliant on our own expertise with it. On my second tour out that realized the value of having a, a specialist, we had a radiologist out there who was just very good at uh, at reading these things. And uh, although we could kind of spot most of the critical things early on, they would then kind of come through into the operating room and go, By the way, I've just had a look at this and spotted that. You might want to have a look at you know, such and
0: such. Uh, and invariably, they were right.
1: You know, um, they'd,
0: they'd be picking up things. And that must also have been something of a take a little bit of the burden off your shoulders if you know somebody else is looking. at the micro and more micro level while you're busy doing with other things
1: yeah hugely I mean I can't I can't begin to describe how complex all of these situations were if you can imagine um, a giant operating room um, where we would have say four operating tables I think maybe five um, and going on you know with severely injured patients on all of them at the same time you've got a critical care, I think of an intensive care unit out the back of it, which has got a limited number of beds. Uh, and you're, we're trying to dispose of the patients onwards. So getting in aeromedical evacuation, uh, where possible, um, just moving patients on the back. And so all this stuff going on and a lot of the information that you have, well, actually when they first arrive, uh, really, really unclear information on the pattern and extent of, the injuries with each of them are often, you know the, the the course of the patient, I suppose, um, only becomes apparent once you've started operating and the kind of general uh, trend of things. So you've
0: got really so incom- the nine really line. dynamic. The nine line the, thing is the nine line, the nine line of where me. they
1: turn up, turn up, is was enough for kind of a broad brush picture as to what you think might be going on. But your understanding of what was going on was just evolving kind of minute by minute, um, you know, throughout and you. Know, uh, when you're when you're operating as well and whether you're, you're rapidly getting on top of things or whether everything's kind of slightly running away from you um uh, as well all these things going on it was it was incredibly complex uh
0: we talked about it a little bit earlier but who's doing triage or is that an on does triage go on all the time
1: triage goes on all the time so actually some triage is happening pre pre hospital um so that's that will be on the the nine-liner report. Um, and then uh, and then there was another triage that happened um, on arrival, you know, so literally this one we can kind of park over there, keep comfortable for a bit, come back because there's nothing immediately life-threatening. These ones are life-threatening. That one through onto table one, that one through onto table two, that one to the CD scanner, then onto table three. Um, these sorts of, those sorts of things going on. But never uh, a question
0: then... of, um, certainly, I, I talked to old General John Hackett years ago in the 80s, and he was triaged at Arnhem in a German field hospital, and he was put in you know, in a corner made comfortable to die. And it was only because his batman was with him that he kept pushing the German surgeon to have a look and help a bit, and, and eventually he did. He put him on the table and stitched him up, he'd been shot in the gut, and... He said, actually, he was so fit that he was up and about in 10 days, even though they reckon he wasn't going to survive. So that's not what triage means now, ever. No, no. I mean,
1: I, I don't know about never. I mean, obviously, you there are some injuries that are unsurvivable, however you look at them. Um, but certainly, it was that wasn't um, something that we had experience of or that I ever experienced. Um, we, we had people coming in, you know, in in cardiac arrest, um, but because they'd been um, you know, alive on the helicopter, uh, then yeah, you know, we would go. We would absolutely give you know, all
0: efforts uh, that we could um, with it. And is um, triage? Triage is that's three, is it? Is there a one, two, three? No, or, it's, or it's not. It's uh, it's
1: French "trier," which oh. uh, is to sort.
0: Right, to sort okay.
1: patients. So you're basically sorting them by by categories. Um, So it happens, so I'll give you examples, there were a number of um, mass casualty uh, events uh, on my various uh, times out there. Um, So they would be um, IEDs, often suicide IEDs uh, in crowded areas like a marketplace or those sorts of things. And the triage there would be done by the troops who were there first of all and often uh, you know, a GDMO, so a, a junior doctor who was deployed out in one of the forward operating bases. And you do things like they would do forms of triage, which is right, you know, all the casualties I want to move over, you know, to that, and you designate a spot. And what you're then doing is everyone who's able to walk is going over there. So you've done started the sorting process, all those people who can walk, you've just demonstrated that they've got enough. Wounded. Mm. Yeah, exactly. They've got enough blood going around the body that they can brain is there, they can hear what you're saying, understand what you're saying, and they can walk and move around. Uh, and then you look at the people who are left behind, you are then looking at the, those people who say, so right, who here, you would know, ask some, some, uh, some general question like, yeah, you know, call out if you're wounded. And so people who then call out and you know, speak and all the rest, we now know they've got enough blood going to their brain that they can speak. We know that they're not fit enough to walk. So they're kind of in a middle category It's the people who are then silent and not reacting that the people you then need to go over and have a look at, and then you need to pretty quickly, um, you know, sort those into the people who are dead, uh, already into those people who have got immediately life-threatening, uh, injuries that are something that you might be able to do, uh, do things about.
0: Yes, I seem so to remember it's... from my training, bleeding, breathing, breathing, bleeding, breaks and burns, something like that. Was that the thing? Uh, we all... So,
1: yeah, it sort of moved on a bit, actually.
0: I, I <laughs> so hope used so. To be...
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think you were saying you served in the 80s. Um, yeah.
0: I don't think you'd. All we had was a little bit of, um, you know, the from the Falklands, everyone's very excited, mainly about yomping. That was the main thing yeah. they seemed to get from, and 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 as I think I mentioned when we talked before, um, you know, saline drips and yomping. That was what came from the Falklands.
1: Yeah, so the Falklands was a um, was an kind of non characteristic conflict. So for for various reasons, I'm sure you're aware of historically with the helicopters not being available, at Atlantic conveyor and, and the rest is, it didn't have rapid um, evacuation of the casualties. So there was a certain amount of triage that happened because they they couldn't uh, evacuate people quickly so essentially the people who made it to ajax bay were a fairly heavily pre-selected group as well Uh, there was a lot there was a lot of stuff that they were doing that was standard civilian practice here right up into the early 2000s of you know giving um as you say saline putting in drips early um, giving colloid which is another kind of form of fluid as well uh, but actually, evidence came out that that was not a good thing to be doing.
0: Right, um, And the and temperature so, also affected yeah. things, didn't it? I think there was something about temperature that helps in some circumstances.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a really complex area. So there, uh, there are some good things about low temperature, but there are some really bad things about low temperature. So we would talk about the, the triad of death or the vortex of death, which is this spiral you can get into where your body temperature gets low you have low circulating blood volume and your blood is getting acid when that happens because you're you're all the enzymes in your body designed to work at 37 degrees at a ph of seven as soon as you drift away from that they stop working so suddenly your blood clotting system isn't working properly so suddenly you start bleeding more so you start bleeding more you lose um, your blood pressure perfusion the tissues you get more acid building up you're into this kind of spiral of things going down. So uh, what we do now is a kind of a controlled um, hypotension so that when people have got major bleeding and their blood pressure drops, as long as they've got enough blood pressure to keep their brain vital organs alive, we're okay with that. Um, And then we do the things that we need to do uh, to stop the bleeding to kind of put the, the another Kind of analogy is put the plug in the bath um, before you then turn on the taps. So um, the old days of just putting up the drip was kind of just just turn on the taps and try and fill the bath back up. But until yes. you've until you've plugged yes. it, yes, you're filling you're, it up you're water, it, not blood, you want to hide it exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. So that was another big um advance. Was a, this one was probably more a relearning of a lesson uh from the Second World War and from the Korean War Um when blood used to be transfused as whole blood um, which has all of the good things in it in terms of the clotting agents and the cells that help blood clotting as well what had happened through civilian life is uh, blood transfusion had become just about the red blood cells about the oxygen carrying capacity of it so again there's a really big rediscovery of this thing that actually giving um, all the blood components so the Uh, red blood cells but also the plasma that has all of these clotting factors in it and the platelets which these cells uh, help stop um, help stop bleeding uh, as well Uh, so that was a really really big um, lesson we relearned and kind of moved on another
0: uh, and do you think that lesson can be applied in the in the civilian world we live in now around hospitals that's a really good example of something that's come
1: back from Iraq and Afghanistan and gone back and gone back into hospitals and really changed things
0: as well. So um, people on the scene in car accidents or whatever have have a different kind of training now and know about?
1: Yeah so not so much on the scene it would be when you first arrive in uh, an emergency department Um, so it's at that point it used to be done in a reactive way you'd kind of wait until things were spiraling out of control in terms of bleeding before you'd be giving the plasma and the platelets the rest with it whereas now uh it's moved to we can see that this patient is bleeding so much that this is going to this is an imminent threat that's going to happen let's stop that before
0: it gets worse okay um so this podcast is about the IED the um, improvised explosive device Um, are you able to give a a description perhaps of the the difference between a a bullet wound and how an IED affects a human body? So it's a good question. Okay, give me a
1: second. Uh, So an IED is absolutely uh, brutal uh, for weapon. So it's dominated by blast uh, and the way the majority of the ids in afghanistan were um people uh your know, soldiers on foot uh on foot patrol so they were their blast was in very close proximity very often um tripped by a pressure plate um use a hacksaw blade uh, to make the electrical contact and, and go off so immediate exposure to massive um, yeah, uh, massively uh, high explosive blast force uh, coming up, and with that blast, um, there was everything that was in between the explosive and the surface that the soldier stood on. So all of the uh, dirt, uh, you know, vegetation, all the bacteria, fungal spores, and all the rest of it that was in there was driven at incredibly high velocity up into the into the body. Um, so you have uh, immediately a, a combination of all sorts of um, mechanisms of injury. So from the, it's actually the blast that tends to cause the, the fractures to the bones. it's um, the shock wave of it. You then have the, um, the blast wave itself that is then stripping the um, soft tissues. Uh, and at the same time, driving in all this debris into uh, the soft tissues that um, into these devitalized, uh, these soft tissues that have had the blood flow destroyed. So you immediately have just the um, worst possible situation that you can imagine for trying to do something. Um, So whereas with a gunshot wound, uh, so here we're talking about Military gunshot wounds, which are high energy transfer ones. So you've got, you do have a round coming through that is really high velocity. You are getting shock waves coming through. They are devitalizing tissues around where they've been, but they're generally not bringing in huge amounts of external debris to them, and they're much more kind of along and around that particular uh, path of the uh, uh, of the round of the bullet. Um, Whereas the IED wounds were just far more indiscriminate, and um, I'm sure you you know, but it was you know there'd be multi, not just multi-limb, but also multi um, your body cavity, multi body um, region as well, and just horrendous horrendous combinations
0: of injuries. There's um, yeah, thank you for for that, uh, Tom. There, there's um, seemingly in different conflicts certain types of weapon which get a particular bad rep. Um, and as a couple examples, in um, the First World War was the, the sawback bayonet. I don't know if you know about that, but apparently, basically, I'm sure you do, that uh, the word was sent back to the Germans that if they were caught with those, that the Tommies or the Canadian troops would basically just kill them. Uh, there'd be no quarter. And in the Second World War, Jamie, my co-host, was telling me that the German shoe mine was a particularly a hated weapon by the GIs and the, and the Allied troops because of that thing of injuring a man to the extent that lots of other people had to deal with him. And he was left with a life changing injury, but wasn't killed. Um, and white,
1: I, white, white phosphorus was another example of, of that as well, of in you know, the Second World War, but used by the Allies, um, you know, white phosphorus grenades and the rest.
0: Yes, uh, and and it just that's one of the reasons why I think this IED. I mean, the um, in Afghanistan it, it was an asymmetrical war, wasn't it? And I remember when when troops first went out there, there was um, quite successful Allied um, engagements with the enemy, where they basically had battles with, with uh, you know against men with Kalashnikovs, and invariably the Afghanis got you know al qaeda or whoever it was um got taken out and it seemed rather successful and they moved into ieds and um it, you know it really did show how a small group of men could cause a huge amount of difficulty so your your what what is your view on it as a device for warfare is it is it possible to even have a view on something so horrendous um
1: I don't think I can give a um, any kind of form of dispassionate answer. It was, it was beyond horrific. Um, what you were seeing was, um, well, you are seeing people, soldiers who you might have, you've seen in the cookhouse the day before, um, now certainly coming in, you dressed identically to the way you're dressed. Um, yeah, they got up that morning, the same way that you got up that morning. Uh, and the injuries or the extent of the injuries, uh, with the ID and just what they do to the, uh, to the body is. Yeah, it's just I, I can't even begin to put into words. I think you'd need somebody much better with words than than I am to un to understand that. Um, yeah, the horror, I suppose, the the sort of the yeah, the horror of seeing somebody who was. And these are young soldiers these are people who are you know, prime specimens of you know, fitness and health and whatever and just what that does to the uh, to them and to the body um, and you know, in the short term and also knowing of course that this is the beginning of it for 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 them for the rest of their life you know, if they're lucky enough to to survive the next you know, next hour or two
0: yes well well maybe maybe we could come on to some of the lessons that you, you, as a doctor, as a surgeon, have have learnt coming back from the battlefield to civilian life, and also for you know us in this country, the National Health Service, and so on, uh, to dealing with uh, injuries and also trauma, and how how you engage in the healing process. And I don't mean the healing process just from the point of view that are injured, but also you know clearly this sort of thing affects everybody it affects you as, as as you know you're not you're not being shot at but you're having a very traumatic experience every day for three months non-stop perhaps it's even worse
1: occasionally rocketed yeah
0: yes um, yes. yes so you are being shot at sorry i take that back but um and and I mean as you said junior doctors are on patrol and um yeah. and so you know they're in they're in the mix but but um So you're right. Um,
1: So I think in all these things, you um, try to look for some positives from it all. Uh, And I do think that that one of the few areas where we point to some positives that have come out from this is what it has done to Um, Improved trauma care in civilian life and these fundamental um, organizational uh, changes um, and the standardization of the approach to trauma and bringing that back. I think that kind of can't be underestimated. I don't think the UK would have a national uh, trauma network as it has uh, now if it hadn't been for those experiences. I think, um, and maybe touched on this, but it did a lot of um, joint uh, operating with the US uh, surgeons in my second tour. And so there's been a huge amount of um, collaboration and sharing of of, uh, lessons and ways that things can improve. So there's a very dynamic um, world around uh, trauma, Care and how to improve uh, yeah, outcomes for people in civilian life uh, worldwide. Uh, as a result, um, I think the bit that is there and will always be there is the lasting effects that this stuff has um, on all those people who are exposed to it. Of course, to the you know, first and foremost, to those people who were uh, who were injured. Uh, to the families of those who are injured, the families of of those who died. Um, But I think everyone who was out there and everyone who was um, up close with it has been profoundly affected by it. I still, I mean, lots of of stuff that I will just never talk about with anyone um, who wasn't out there, not for any uh, reason other than I don't have the ability to be able to convey what it was like, um, and it, it feels almost kind of perverse to try and uh, communicate that to people who um, you have no idea. Why would you? Yeah, it would. It would seem sort of, in some ways, kind of cruel to try and try and talk about it, to try and convey it. Um, so it's something that is a, uh, you know, leaves a deep, deep impression scar, I don't know, um, on us all. Uh, those of us who were out there, when we get together, we talk about it. We talk about how it's affected us afterwards. Um, and we do, you know, we take those positives and the rest with it. But it was, it was a profound experience that I would hope <laughs> no one, no one a forlorn hope and I would hope that no one in the future has to go through. But yes. that is a full on hope.
0: Um but you still um you you know the people you are serving out there, you, you're you in touch with each other and yeah. there is sort of um so you have your your group of old lags yeah. who can get together. <laughs> lags to get That's and, what my grandfather yeah. used to call his bomber pilots and his bomber crews old lags. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of a term of endearment, but um
1: no, there was. A, I had a had a get together a few weekends ago, and um, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff is is unspoken still, but you you kind of you talk about a few things, and yeah,
0: it's kind of with people who who um you know who could empathise because they know what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, 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 this is probably this is probably I'll probably get into trouble with surgical trade union there's such a thing but because surgeons are supposed to be completely you know men of steel and not to have any sort of emotions and the rest with it um but i don't know a single i don't know a single person who went through it who hasn't been yeah, profoundly Perfect.
0: affected yes yeah. well i'm glad hopefully to put that you can put a little bit of that right because sometimes they're portrayed on tv as being these godlike figures who dispense their their um advice and skill on on us mere mortals and um, clearly that's a ridiculous idea. There's a there's a girl actually in the pub just around the corner from me who uh, has, um, I was talking to her last week about this series that I was doing and um turns out that she'd written her English dissertation on uh, really the First World War but the, I think she calls it the liminal barrier between the battlefield and the hospital ward. Um, and I'm, I've actually read most of it. There's a lot of references to Sassoon and Owen and people and, and the way that those young men were not really able to deal with uh, their their feelings until they sort of started writing, whether it's poems or, or you know, and that it got to that point because uh, they, they were almost shut up by what they'd seen. They couldn't express it. Do you have... Um, any particular books or poets that you have got you know you've read that have made any kind of sense to you about all of this from any period
1: uh sounds for its poor reflection on me but uh, i try to avoid anything that's going to uh trigger uh, memories about it. I've had a few things where I've been reading something and I, um, yeah, I, I don't really, I can't kind of hold it together, I suppose. Um, so I find it easier just to talk to other people uh, who were there rather than trying to make sense. But uh, there's something a little bit. I'm uh, comfortable talking about this um, also because you know, my, my experience, you know, I came back, I have all four limbs, I'm healthy, um, all the rest of it. Um, and, you know, the people, the things here were were all things that were happening to to other people. And I think the the really big question is these, you know, young guys, you know, 18, 19, 20 year olds, um, who one moment they're there walking along, you know, on patrol with their best mates, um, and the next thing they're aware of is waking up in a hospital bed in Birmingham, um, and you know what happened in between, and you're now you're know, literally not the person you were before because of the you know, the injuries that you've you know, that you've had, um, and that uh, yeah I think obviously it's beginning to get the attention that it deserves, but the long term you know, psychological um effects and trauma to to these people um you know it's that's that's the real the real story yes
0: yeah, so well that's very modest of you tom but actually i think the other way of looking at that is that you know you were exposed to it every hour of the day you were out at the time you were out there and soldiers you know are they're not seeing it 24 7 in the same ways they might be at the you know the receiving end of it in a horrible fashion and god hope that that it's not them but but i think you can't do down which is why i'm really keen that we've had this talk and i'm really grateful to you for talking about this because i you know i can see it's not easy for you that it's um physical injury is one thing but you know experiencing terrible things has an effect a huge effect on people and i think you're an extremely brave person Is there anything else that you want to talk about, Tom?
1: (laughs) I can tell you times when I've been there with my young young children and there's been something that has just triggered it. And, yeah, when you see, um, when, when your children see your dad just kind of completely and utterly lose it, in terms of kind of emotional control and things. But, you know, uh, this must have, well, it did, of course. It happened to every generation. It happened to, was it it your grandfather who was? um,
0: My grandfather fought in the First and Second World War. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, I have children. Some are not so young anymore. I, I, I think children are amazing how they can deal with their parents in distress. And I think some of the difficulties of the past generations have been have been the stiff upper lip you know i think that the fact your children can can see you in all your manifestations isn't a bad thing um i anyway i think you're a brave man tom and thank you for that extraordinary moving account of battlefield medicine and the outcomes resulting from injury sustained by ieds the improvised explosive device thanks tom thank you so it goes Next week we publish the final part, the third part, of our discussion on the IED. I interview Simon Conway from the Halo Trust, a frontline expert on the IED with knowledge of their form, deployment and legacy and how to get rid of them. Please pass this podcast on to a friend to help spread the word. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com Thank you and Good luck.